This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Welcome to the Bloomberg Business Week Extra. It's our weekly podcast bringing you an in-depth interview you will not hear anywhere else. And we sat down with John Donahoe. He's the incoming CEO of Nike. He'll start that job in the new year. Uh, It was really great to catch up with him because to see what he said about why he took the job, what he sees in terms of the fitness industry. But what was really fun is there he is, or he's been in Silicon Valley, and we got to talk about some of those bigger, broader issues like the tech backlash that we're seeing. Right views on that. This is a guy, it's interesting, his wife, and you'll hear this in the conversation, mm-hmm. she holds a key position at Stanford. They were really partners throughout. She went to law school while he went to business school. So his perspective on this is wide-ranging, a very thoughtful conversation. Check it out. we got to start, John, uh, with your time at Stanford. Take us back there. Well, I was, I was blessed enough to be at the GSB between 1984 and 1986. And it was really, I think, probably the most formative experience I had that has set me up for not just my career, but to be honest, my, my overall life over the last 30 years. Um, I distinctly remember uh, many of my professors as well as my classmates. And what Stanford really, really you know, grounded me in was this notion of servant leadership. Um, it was a phrase I first heard at Stanford It resonated with me. Ernie Arbuckle had been a former dean of Stanford, and that's where the phrase came from. And if I were to say there's been one foundational, foundational almost guiding principle for the last, you know, 35 years since then, it's been a real uh, inspiration and attraction toward this notion of servant leadership. Well, and there are so many full circle elements to this, and we're going to get to them throughout the conversation, one of them being the Phil Knight Business School. But you were the winner, I believe, of the Arbuckle Mm -hmm. Award. So clearly, uh, whatever you learned there really took root. I mean, when you go there in the 80s, Silicon Valley is certainly developed and developing a far cry from, from where it is now. Why did you go west in the first place? Well, Sanford at the time, the, you know, I, I, I went to Dartmouth College undergrad. I was fortunate enough as a senior in college to apply to a few different business schools. I was fortunate enough to get in. But I knew I wanted to go to Stanford because Stanford, as a, as a, senior, in high, a senior in college, rather, in 1982, it was known for teamwork. Um, it was known for working with and through others. And that was really attractive to me. I'd played sports my whole life. I loved team sports. I had not yet been in business, but I knew that a team approach was what I wanted to do. And that was a reputation Stanford had. I'd never lived in California, so I, I joined Bain for two years uh, with the agreement that I was going to, going to Stanford in 1984. And when I came out, I certainly wasn't disappointed. Well, and it's interesting, John, I mean, because both you and your wife were there at the same time. She was getting a law degree, correct? Yeah, a, a law and a master's in Asian studies um, uh, so, yeah, a joint, a joint degree. What was it about, though? The and rest- it was really the early years of our... Yeah, go ahead. It was, really, it was sort of a... You know, we came out there. We had, we had been married. We had our first child, my first term of, of uh, business school. Eileen started at Stanford Law School that next fall. And we actually lived in married students' housing for five years. <laughs> so the two years I was at business school and three years after... And, and one of the things that Stanford really embodied was this notion of family. Mm. And Stanford feels like a family inside the business school. And it's not a place where there's work and home or personal and professional life. A more integrated understanding of life 
I really felt like I learned at Stanford, and we were at a very formative stage of our marriage. You know, what began, you know, a, 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 a marriage and a set of dual careers that have intertwined for the last 35 years. And Stanford kind of legitimized that. They, 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 I took a lot of classes at Stanford that were about the human side of management, about the inner journey of leadership, not just accounting and marketing and finance. And so in, in Stanford, it was very legitimate to talk about things like the inner journey of leadership, talk about your personal and professional life and how to build an integrative life. And so at a very young age and a very impressionable stage in my life, I feel like what I got from Stanford is those things were not only were they legitimate, they were the best way to lead a fulfilling and hopefully impactful life. It sounds and like I you, feel like I learned that at Stanford. It sounds like you got that early on, because what's interesting is I feel like the conversation among leaders today, we're seeing it with the business roundtable, that, you know, yep, it's great to build a strong company, a financially sound company, but it's not just about shareholders. It's a much more holistic approach to looking at a company's impact on society at large. And it sounds like you learned that early. Very much, very much. You know, Stanford embodied that. Um, it was... It was some of the other business schools at the time were almost kind of, you know, factories of certain career tracks. At Stanford, they really encouraged us to, to go inside of ourselves, think about what spoke to us, what did we care deeply about, to see the world in a fairly integrative way. They had a very strong public sector program that was integrated into the core MBA program, not a separate program. And so this notion of, you know, if I think about back in that period of time, this notion of servant leadership, this notion of an integrative perspective, both of life and business, society and business, and also an integrative way to understand a business. I feel like those are all things that um, I didn't know it at the time, how, mm -hmm. how valuable it was mm -hmm. going to be. And I, I, I probably couldn't have used those words at the time. I was just in the experience. But I feel so fortunate because I think those things have served me really, really well in the last, you know, the last 35 years uh, since then. So let's go back to, to the mid-80s. When you come out, how does all of that inform the choices you make about the career you want to have and where you want to have it? Well, it, it's, a, it's, a funny, it's a funny example because I made my career choice to go back to Bain after Stanford because I was following my wife in the sense that she was still in law school. Yeah. And so I said, all right, I'll go back to Bain. They paid for business school. Um, I don't know if I would have chosen to do that or not. <laughs> but by saying that I valued that part of our relationship, um, you know, allowed me to go back to Bain. I'll actually go back one other story prior to this. And, just, and this just tells you about what Stanford's like. During my first year at, at Stanford Business School, my wife applied to law school. And she got in. And so... During the beginning of my second year, which was going to be her first year at Stanford Law School, we had a one-year-old child. I went to the dean of, uh, the dean of students, um, student affairs at Stanford Business School, Jerry Gould, and I said, Dean Gould, I have to take next year off or I have to work part-time because we have a one-year-old. We can't both be in graduate school at the same time. And this is classic Stanford. She says, Dean Gould says, oh, John, no, just do this. Go ahead and start. And, you know, if you want to take three classes instead of four, that's fine. Maybe start with four. If you want to drop one, that's fine. And we'll be flexible. You don't have to, you don't have to come in with some preordained plan. That so doesn't that was sound... Like, that gave me... Per Go ahead. Well, it, it, what she did is she gave me permission 
to have an open mind and a mind that said, hey, it was legitimate what my wife was doing and the fact we had a kid as well as going to business school. As it worked out, I started that second year, um, started with four classes, thought I was going to drop one, never ended up dropping one and ended up graduating on time. But Stanford, both institutionally through the dean and just the culture, gave me permission to have the fact that I was a father, the fact that I was married to uh, someone who was a peer and had a dual career. That was legitimate. Right. And so, ironically, I ended up following my wife when I went to Bain um, uh, thereafter. And, you know, that ended up working out okay. I ended up staying 17 years at Bain. Who would have figured at that time? And so you find yourself then back in, in Silicon Valley in, in many ways and have been there really for some of the most formative years as Silicon Valley finds its way deeper and deeper and deeper into society and culture. Help us understand the connection between Silicon Valley and Stanford, because in many ways and, and in many people's minds, they're inextricable. How, how do we best understand that? Well, you, you just said it. You just said it well that uh, they are inextricable. So, for instance, I distinctly remember as a business school student, Steve Jobs came to campus and mm -hmm. gave a speech. Uh, Andy Grove came to campus, gave a speech, and you know, to be honest, we just thought that was normal. Right. <laughs> it wasn't even it was the, the 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 Stanford largely because of its location, but also because of its culture. Um, you know, had a very um, Porous experience with business. Uh, Warren Buffett helped speak at one of the investment classes. Um, and so the outside world, be it Silicon Valley or the other business community, kind of seamlessly flowed in and out. And you as a student were privileged enough to get to get access to that. And then once I graduated and I was part of the Silicon Valley community, first at Bain and then certainly at eBay and now at ServiceNow, um, I'm frequently invited back to speak in a class or to do a seminar. And, and of course, you'll always say yes. It's why I'm doing this video. Right. Dean Levin calls me and says, <laughs> and you say, you know, I'm so appreciative of my time at Stanford. It's like, of course, I want to give back because what Stanford gave me has been invaluable. And so and I think that's particularly true, you know, around Silicon Valley that Silicon Valley learns from Stanford and Stanford learns from Silicon Valley. Well, and I think that's definitely continuing. And I think, you know, Silicon Valley, so much a focus of the world at large and just big tech, um, you know, whether it's by regulators, policymakers. I'm curious, having been so entrenched at several companies within Silicon Valley, what do you make of some of the scrutiny that some of the big tech players, whether it's a Google, whether it's a Facebook, um, whether it's some of the other players, Amazon in particular, what do you make of that scrutiny? Because I'm, I'm sure it's, you know, it's certainly being pulled into the teachings at Stanford. Well, absolutely. And here's what, here's the, the I'm going to go back to my initial theme. Here's the irony. My wife today, my wife went on and had a career in law. She was uh, an ambassador to the Human Rights Council under President Obama. She now has a co-director of a center at Stanford in the Freeman Spogli Institute around digital governance and the impact on democracy and on human rights. Mm. So very much along these issues of the second order consequences and second order of issues of technology today around privacy, around security, 
around things like fake news and the impact it can have on elections. And so I can happily say, like most things in my marriage, my wife is the authority on these particular topics. Well, well, but Jason and I are just again, writing a note that discussed. we're going to have her on because she sounds <laughs> impressive. <laughs> yeah. Trust me, your ratings will be much higher when she's on than when I'm on because <laughs> uh, she's the brains of the family. But this is here's the point. Stanford wants to be the place that's convening dialogue about these topics. Stanford is the place that a Google or a Facebook or a Twitter or uh, an Apple will come with an open mind and trusting that there'll be honest dialogue. And then Stanford's a place that that government, current right. government officials and then former government officials like my wife, um, you know, whether it was Condi Rice, whether it's George Schultz, Bill Perry, a long history of of embracing both producing uh, government uh, policymakers and officials and then welcoming them back. Right. And then, of course, the faculty bringing research and then and then civil society. And so uh, both what my, my in this case, my wife's particular center is just emblematic of what Stanford does so well. Right. The and business school brings Silicon Valley and business and academia together. And in this case, in the public policy arena, Stanford's one of the few places in the world where all the various stakeholders and what is this somewhat emotional debate right now and somewhat polarizing debate, they can come and have honest dialogue with one another right. in a confident that Stanford will create an environment of, of civility and respect to have that, that sort of truth-seeking dialogue. And, and that's true about the university in addition to the business school. In this case, it's being done more in the university. But um, it is just part of what is in that, you know, that secret sauce that is Stanford. John, just quick follow up, though. But if you were at that center or you were pulled into a class and the, and the students there were saying, hey, John, what do you think about the tech lash that's going on? Should big tech be broken up? What would you say? Well, I think I think tech is fundamentally the impact technology has had on the lives of almost every individual in the world and by and large in society has been positive. Technology has brought transparency, technology has brought opportunity, technology has brought prosperity in general. But there are second-order consequences, and second-order consequences we haven't yet faced in the world. So, for instance, we have a legal system that's very clear in the physical world. Right? If, if law enforcement has a concern, they can go to a judge, they can get a subpoena, the there's clear rules of what a subpoena can do. If a subpoena comes to a company, you know what you need to do. If subpoena, that hasn't happened yet in the digital world. Mm. So now we don't really have a we don't really have a governance system, and we saw that in the debate between um, you know the FBI and Apple a few years ago, um, and so that needs to be thought through. And it's it you know we talk about innovation of products. That's innovation of governance that it's the first time we're facing this. And there are second order consequences that need to be thought through. Similarly, technology's brought fundamentally good. It's connected the world together. But something like fake news, well, that's come out of, kind of come out of left field. And I can tell you, no one mm. in Silicon Valley and technology five years ago or eight years ago was thinking about fake news. Mm, right. No one imagined, oh my goodness, that's how this platform can be used. Now we have to confront it. Now we have to think through it. I was having a I was having a drink last night with Amid Kordostani, who's the executive chair of Twitter. And you saw, you know, Twitter, Jack Dorsey and and Twitter decided to to ban all political advertising. OK, that may or may not be the right answer, but it's come after they are thinking about it and, and trying to get honest dialogue. 
And we're in an environment where you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. And that's just part of life, that when, when any time you're in the hot seat about something and there are differing perspectives honest people can have, mm-hmm. um, then, you know, it's hard. My perspective is this. It's, it's relatively simple. It's kind of a gray-haired guy in Silicon Valley, <laughs> I guess soon to be moving to Portland. Um, <laughs> the important part is we engage in honest dialogue. We don't duck the issues. It's not that, that technology was good and now is bad. That's not it at all. The, the, the reality is technology has had a profound impact on the world that is net, net, net fundamentally positive. I yeah. deeply believe that. But it's also true that there are second-order consequences and issues that are very real. And we have to be able to acknowledge those and then engage in what is often messy dialogue where reasonable people can have different perspectives and see if we can get civil dialogue Mm -hmm. around, all right, what are the issues, what are the remedies or policies or frameworks that can help us Uh, you know, begin to address some of these issues. And it's going to take time. These are not simple issues. Right. And so what doesn't work is the politicians labeling tech as the bad guys. I don't buy that. And the same way, you can't be tech companies and say government's bad, regulation's bad. I don't buy that either. And the reality so, is this is going to be the hard work of dialogue. Yeah. And so, as you mentioned, uh, Silicon Valley will continue to wrestle with this, mm-hmm. and, and you certainly will be a, a part of this. You're going to keep your board seat uh, at ServiceNow, I, th- I believe, through the end of your term. You'll have a transition to deal with there with Bill McDermott. But we got to talk about your new job. As you said, you're moving to Portland to become the CEO of Nike. You've served on the board there. Why take this job now? Why bring it full circle, uh, as you say, with uh, your esteemed history at the Phil Knight Business School and now working for the company that Phil Knight created. Yeah, Phil's played a big role at the GSB. It's not quite called Phil Knight Business School, but (laughs) Dean Levin's the Phil Knight No, I know. I'm I'm kidding. But, you know, I was was lucky enough and fortunate enough to meet Phil 20 years ago and Mark Parker, uh, Nike's CEO. And I've always deeply resonated with Nike's purpose. Um, which is, you know, bring inspiration and innovation to every athlete in the world. Asterisk around athlete. If you have a body, you are an athlete. Hmm. And to me, that's around human potential. It speaks to each person on this planet around the potential they have within them. And sport is sport is a very powerful institution in our world right now. A lot of our other institutions are falling down. They're polarizing, whether it's you know, government or politics. Sport is something that brings people together. It brings people together on a level playing field within countries and across countries. And so the, the purpose of Nike and the role and impact it does and can have in the world is just something that has, I've always admired deeply. It's always spoken to me. And so, as you mentioned, I was privileged enough to be serve on the board the last five years. And when Mark and Phil and the board uh, invited me to have this opportunity to become CEO. It almost felt like um, a calling and a, and, a, and a cause that I had to pursue. And very much along the lines of what we've been talking about in this conversation, Nike's at the epicenter of many things and I think ha- has had a track record of playing a very positive role, not just with its athletes and customers and consumers, but also in the broader society. And, and so I um, I'm feel very privileged and honored to to have the opportunity to serve, continue my 
my, my quest of servant leadership by serving the employees and customers and athletes and society around Nike. And uh, I'm looking forward to it. So if there's one lesson you could give to uh, future MBA students, what would it be, just quickly? Or future advice? Just do it. <laughs> just do it. That's John Donahoe. He's Stanford Graduate School of Business, class of 1986. We caught up with him because this week in the magazine, in Business Week magazine, it's all about the top business schools in the United States. Stanford was number one, so he's an alum, so we talked with him. But he was chairman of the board at PayPal, former president and CEO at eBay. He had some time at uh, Bain & Company, was the former CEO there. He's now at service now at the top job, but he's taking over the top job at Nike come the new year. A very important conversation, an important guy you're going to want to keep hearing from, especially as he takes that new job. You've been listening to Bloomberg Business Week Extra. Be sure to tune into Bloomberg Business Week Radio Live Monday through Friday at 2 p.m. Wall Street time on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.